This is Chad S. White, author of Email Marketing Rules, Checklists, Frameworks, and 150 Best Practices for Business Success, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. This episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is sponsored by Content Marketing World 2017, this September. I'm going to be there. How about you? Content Marketing World is the one event where you can learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry, including several authors who have been guests on the Marketing Book Podcast. You will leave the conference with all the materials you need to take a content marketing strategy back to your team and to implement a content marketing plan that will grow your business. To register and get the best price, do two things. First, go to marketingbookpodcast.com and click on the Content Marketing World banner Make sure to go through marketingbookpodcast.com so they'll know I sent you. Seriously, there's a bottle of scotch in it for me for everyone who registers through marketingbookpodcast.com. Then, for the lowest price, when you register, make sure to use promo code MARKETINGBOOK and they'll knock $100 off your ticket price. $100. Think about it. That's $100 you can spend buying both of us drinks once you get there and still have money left over. I'll have more details after the interview. Today, we welcome Chad S. White to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the new third edition of his best-selling book, Email Marketing Rules, Checklists, Frameworks, and 150 Best Practices for Business Success. Chad White is the author of more than 3,000 posts and articles about email marketing trends and best practices. He has served as lead email marketing researcher at three of the largest email service providers, Salesforce, ExactTarget, and Responses, as well as at the Direct Marketing Association. Chad is currently the research director at Litmus, a web-based email design, testing, and analytics platform. He's a former journalist at Condé Nast and Dow Jones. Chad has been featured in more than 100 publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, U.S. News, the World Report, Advertising Age, Adweek, Fortune, and Market Watch. And interesting fact, Chad S. White is a graduate of Texas A&M. Chad, congratulations on email marketing rules and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas, for having me. I appreciate it. So, Chad, Really significant to have you on for a couple of big reasons. One is this is going to be, I think, the 130th episode, and this is going to be the first book about email marketing. <laughs> That's, that, I guess it's a tremendous honor. Also kind of unfortunate. There are lots of good books about email marketing. There uh, are. But I'm honored that mine is the first. Well, I think it was just long overdue and found out about this and thought, boy, let me, let me try to get him on here. But perhaps even more significant, Chad S. White, you are the first graduate of Texas A&M University. And I say that because we've had two University of Texas grads on the show, Tom Martin and Shama Hyder. And both, they wrote excellent books. Shama's been on twice. I think we needed some balance here, Chad. 
See, I think you're trying to, to bait me here with these UT references, but actually both of my parents went to UT. That's where they met and fell in love. So I have no ill will towards UT. Okay. And so, Chad, uh, Chad White, he's, he's a uniter, not a divider. That's right. I just have a suggestion for you. For your fourth edition of the book, and I do hope you have a fourth in you know, a couple of years, I would hope that you could get a foreword written by Brian Clark from Copyblogger because he's a Texas A&M grad. That would be pretty awesome. I have, a, I have mad respect for him. Yeah, yeah. So now the book, I have to say, it was the longest book I've read for the podcast. It was 464 pages, but don't let that scare you. It's not like reading Moby Dick. In fact, I read this faster than I've read some books that were half that length. So it was a really very fast read. And one thing I wanted to mention, at the beginning of the book, you talked about how a lot of people who are doing email marketing, they have sort of a solitary existence. I, mean, I guess you mean like they might be the only one doing it at their company or there aren't a lot of other people to talk to about this. Yeah, being an email marketer can be a little bit isolating. I think that's changing. But a lot of email marketing, quote unquote, teams are just one person. Usually a lot of companies, especially uh, you know smaller and even some medium-sized businesses, there's, there's only one person who's you know, sole responsibility is email marketing. And, uh, and so that can be a little bit isolating. Obviously, there are many other cases where email marketing teams, you know, stretch into 10, 20 people, some of these uh, larger companies that are really kind of all in on email. But that's starting to change. One of the, the big things that's happening right now is that email marketing is in the process of de-siloing. It's being integrated into a lot of other channels. So more and more people are kind of like getting involved. There's more of a, I don't know, like a kind of a flex approach to email marketing as email marketing gets input from the web people and the mobile app people and search and you know social and all these things are trying to kind of mix together in a, in a wonderful way, sort of a, a melting pot. Of, of marketing is going on right now. And so that's that's sort of, you know, starting to make email marketers a little less isolated at smaller companies. Well, that's a good thing. And I was thinking about the people who would like the book is anyone who's doing email marketing is it's it was like a full day, full immersion in a in a workshop. I mean it was it was fantastic. You know, we're, we're I'm in the agency business. I learned a lot just by reading this and we're doing we're helping clients with email marketing along with some other things. And I would think that, you know, I, I could just envision a CEO handing this book to their marketing person saying, Go forth and evangelize because the more that people in the organization are able to understand and acknowledge the importance of email, the more effective they're gonna be. And also, if I were a marketer and I had an agency, I would send this book to him and say, Hey fellas, why don't you read this and then let's discuss? <laughs> so I, I that that would be my recommendation. But can you explain why email marketing is what you you describe as, as misunderstood? Yeah, it's it's incredibly misunderstood, and I think that because it, it has it has sort of a strange like uh, past where it's evolved several times, and you know a lot of people who have been in email marketing for a long time they've come up through direct marketing and sort of direct mail and email definitely you know has a bit of that flavor and a lot of those principles are applicable but it's very different in a bunch of other ways so yeah it's just sort of a chronically misunderstood channel people think that it works a certain way when it doesn't a lot of it is you know the you know, my experience versus the experience of my subscribers. There's sort of a, you know, a lot of uh, bosses, a lot of like CEOs and CMOs that uh, see email a certain way in their own inbox. And they unfortunately make a lot of assumptions about what that means for all of their subscribers. 
so there's just all kinds of ways in which you can kind of you know, very quickly kind of get off basis. And the other thing I think that really messes up a lot of people is that there's this incredibly untrue perception of email that it hasn't changed much, that it's, you know, a mature channel and that it's sort of stayed and, you know, and hasn't really been changing. It's changed dramatically over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, which is, uh, which is really great from my point of view, because it's added a bunch of new capabilities, things it couldn't do before. There's a bunch of technology changes. There's a huge amount of like consumer behavior changes. I mean, so just to name, just to name probably the, the biggest one as of late, smartphones. The iPhone came out in 2007. At that point, sure, you could get email on your BlackBerry, but that was text only. With the advent of the iPhone, you got HTML emails, you know, on your phone. You could see graphics and and do a lot of stuff. And so, starting in 2007, there started to be the sea change in design and how people would get messaged. You know, prior to that, when you when you were sending an email, if you were a marketer, you assumed that your subscriber was sitting in front of of a computer, that they were at their home or at their place of work, and that has, of course, been completely you know blown up. And I mentioned you know that 2007 mark because we're now at 2017, mm-hmm. and there's still some marketers who are kind of struggling with like that new paradigm <laughs> of of being mobile friendly. And you know, and now I guess the 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 new trick is not only being you know mobile friendly in the inbox, but also having a mobile friendly website, a mobile friendly mobile app, which you know mobile apps are sort of inherently mobile friendly, but not necessarily. There's a, there's a bunch of like hiccups and like things that can go wrong as you sort of have that you know that that interaction that may start with an email and then flow into uh, a mobile app or what have you. Mm-hmm. But you know, on the other side of the coin, yeah, email's been around and it's changed and adapted, and it's going to probably that change of email, the improvements are going to actually speed up. But yeah, AI, it, and yeah, like it, it hasn't been disrupted. exactly like you talk about at the end of the book, but it's not going to be overtaken by another channel anytime soon. In other words, like if I were a young marketer starting out. I would probably read this and say, you know what? The first thing I'm going to do is bone up on email marketing <laughs> because it's going to change, but it's, I don't know that it's going to go away like you know, something like, let's say you, you come into work and there's another young marketer hired at the same time. They want to be the Snapchat expert. I want to be the email marketing expert because I don't know that those skills are going to be quite as perishable as perhaps some of the social media. I think that's a, a very good call. <laughs> yeah, so... As I talk about uh, early on in the book, I talk about how there's this perception that an email is an owned uh, media channel. You know, the sort of you know the paid, owned, earned, like the PO media model. And I argue that that model is is outdated. And I put forward what I call the Pogel media model, which is paid, owned, granted, leased, and earned. Okay. And the and the big difference there being that I I contend that email marketing and SMS and uh, and search authority that these are granted by other entities to us you know and that that has its own set of uh, of rules that you have to kind of follow that's different and of course least being social media where you are building on somebody else's property we've certainly already seen you know like the rules get changed at facebook many many times we've seen things like myspace obviously go away completely but yeah if you're if you're betting on email that is a very stable channel. And the main thing is, is because, you know, one of the things that's special about granted media is that it's fractured. 
nobody owned email marketing. No one can dramatically change the rules of email marketing. Nobody can like raise no costs. Can't. Right. No company can do that. You know, obviously, folks uh, at, at Microsoft and Google and Apple, you know, have a huge, huge role in sort of the email environment, but none of them control it. You know, they, they tweak around the edges, but it's a very stable channel for that reason. And that's both good and bad. And so it makes it incredibly stable. But then we have this very fractured environment where there's different rules and, you know, in sort of different inboxes and different capabilities, which, you know, introduces its own pains. But it does make it incredibly stable and unlikely to be, you know, surpassed by, you know, certainly not a, a least channel like Facebook. You know, Facebook is huge, but email is way huger. Let me ask you, because you talk about inbox providers, explain for the listener what an inbox provider is. And I think not everyone appreciates how powerful they are, sort of like the Google algorithm, how powerful that is. But explain what you mean when you say that email marketers sit uncomfortably between business owners and inbox providers, each of which has different agendas. Sure. So an inbox provider is the mechanism through which you are viewing emails. So that's your Gmail. It's your, your native email app on the iPhone. It's Outlook.com. It's the desktop Outlook version. You know, these, are, these are the ways that, you, that a consumer, a subscriber, sees the email. And those guys can determine which emails make it to the inbox. They determine which code they support. So and there's tons of different kinds of code that some inbox providers uh, support and allow to work and other ones that don't. So for instance, right now, a lot of the Apple inbox providers support HTML5 video where you can play video inside of an email, inside of your inbox without clicking through to a landing page. But you know, Gmail doesn't support that and, and other inbox providers don't support that. So you have this kind of unevenness so in terms of... What are their motivations? Yeah, so the motivations of the inbox providers is to serve their users. So they want to protect their users from senders that, that shouldn't be sending them email, certainly from, you know, I guess, in a broader sense, spam, though that definition has become kind of loaded at this point. It's a very broad, expansive definition of what spam is. But they want to protect their users and, and to give them a good experience so, they, so that their users will come back uh, again and again and again. So on the other hand, you have businesses who want to use email marketing to make money. And that's, a, that's essentially their goal. And email marketers, they sit right in between those two where, we have to, where email marketers have to make both of those parties happy. They want to allow their business to, to make money but they have to respect the rules that the inbox providers set up so that they can make sure that their emails not only reach the users of those, those email clients, but at the same time, those emails you know, render and display and work the way that, they want, that marketers want those emails to work. Chad, before we go much further, let me ask you to talk a bit about the hierarchy of subscriber needs, where you explain that a lot of the book is about meeting the hierarchy of subscriber needs. And it's often where marketers go wrong in email marketing. So could you explain what it is and, and, and what's in it? Sure. So there are four levels of that hierarchy. And the most foundational level is respectful. You want to send respectful emails. And by that, you need to be you know, only sending emails to people that opt in, having good permission practices, good expectation setting. That's really... That's the foundation. On top of that, you want to be sending 
functional emails. You know, I talked about how the inbox environment is very fractured, how different email clients or inbox providers support different kinds of code. You need to be aware of those differences and make sure that you are creating emails that look good everywhere. The next layer up from that is, is probably sort of where we're having sort of the golden age right now. It's valuable email experiences. And that's where it's all about creating you know, value and relevance. And we're seeing tons of stuff in terms of personalization, targeting, you know, AI, you know, big data. That's where we're seeing a lot of activity and tons of obviously investment in terms of companies in trying to, to make sure that we're having more sort of one, definitely some one-to-one conversations or definitely sort of one to sort of small group conversations where people are having just a highly tailored content, highly tailored experiences, you know, when they're dealing with a brand. And then the tippy top level is remarkable email experiences. And this sort of acknowledges that, you know, even if you're generating a significant amount of like value, like people like to be wowed on occasion. They like to have something to share with their friends and their colleagues. And that's what that that topmost level is, that sort of recognizing that people hunger for, you know, those kinds of like occasionally like just outstanding experiences that, you know, just get them excited and get them talking about it and sharing it with other people. And I think we all have like those email brands, you know, that do that for us. Yeah, like if I didn't get a few of them that I subscribe to, I would miss them. Yes, And absolutely. for me, that becomes one of the great tests of, you know, <laughs> before you send a, an email out to whatever segment you're trying to reach, ask if, uh, assuming it's not transactional, ask if they would miss it, if it's, a, if it's regular. So you say that permission is the foundation of email marketing. And I want to talk about this, Chad, because I have a story, and I think it's probably like a lot of people you're familiar with and, and, and maybe marketers out there. Uh, not too long ago, we were approached by a company, my agency was, and these guys were talking about you know, wanting to hire us to help them out. And the, the CEO of the company was really excited because they had just bought 150,000 email addresses that they were going to, and this was his word, blast out. And I tried to explain to them, you know, even if they didn't hire us, I said, you really better better be careful with that. And we ended up not working with them for some other reasons, but I was worried for them. I thought, you know what? Maybe a lot of people don't understand what your rule number three out of 150 was, don't buy email list or barter for email addresses. Chad, why is that such a bad idea and what can happen to a company if they do that? Yeah, so you're really, you're gambling Big time. So subscribers are incredibly empowered by inbox providers to, you know, they have that report spam button that immediately gets rid of emails. You know, they can really destroy your sender reputation really quickly if you are buying lists. Somebody hits the spam button, what happens? So so first of all, that person is no longer going to get your emails. That's, That's number one ever again. So that's number one. But number two is that inbox providers use that negative feedback loop to inform their blocking decisions. And if enough people hit that uh, report spam button, and it doesn't have to be that many people on a percentage basis, then all of your emails going to that particular inbox provider will start to get blocked. And then your messages aren't getting through. And and that happens on sort of a on a sender wide level. So, I mean, the, the thing that's really dangerous here is that let's just say that person already had a list 
of like engaged subscribers. Like say it was, you know, they had some big list of, or whatever. Maybe it was a salesman who came from, it was coming in a new job. These were some old contacts he had. Right. But it jeopardizes your ability to reach your current, you know, contacts, people who are already receiving your emails and were happy receiving them, you know, be they customers or prospects. Well, now you've just jeopardized your ability to reach all of those people. So it's really kind of poisoning the well on yourself. That's why it's so dangerous. So if you're with a company and let's say it's a big company and they start sending out emails to purchased email lists, does that mean that that company's emails from anybody are going to have a hard time getting through? That's likely what's going to happen. Yes. Wow. So what's happened then? Do they end up having to change their their domain name if if it's beyond (laughs) repair and forgiveness? Yeah, so that used to be the thing that you would do is that you would start to make changes to your IP address or you would change your uh, your email service provider, the one that helps you send your emails, and dodgy people would, would move around and try to change things up and mask their identity and such. That is becoming harder and harder to pull off because uh, the way that things are increasingly working is that your sender reputation is is not only based on where you are sending from in terms of IP addresses but also where you link to so uh, you know if you're a business and you're you're constantly promoting you know your own website that starts to become tainted as a destination via email so it's becoming like this is one of the ways that email is evolving is that inbox providers are becoming way smarter at like ferreting out the bad actors. So for instance, here's another example. We talk about you know sending relevant emails and the reason for that is that you want to see positive engagement from your subscribers. It used to be that you would send out emails and so long as not very many people you know hit the report spam button, you were good to go. Right. And and so brands figured this out. And they, they started add to, more emails, right? And they would add more email addresses and they would keep on people who weren't responding to those emails at all, but weren't reporting it as spam. And so they would bloat their email list with all of these sort of non-responders who you know didn't respond and engage, but they also didn't do anything bad. They didn't report the email as spam. So inbox providers figured this out. And now they not only look at these negative feedback in terms of spam complaints, they also look at positive engagement feedback in terms of opens and other activity. So now that forces marketers to to not only you know try to build their list around people who want to be you know on that list, but also it forces them to do um, what we call inactivity management, uh, where people who stop engaging with your emails after a period of many, many months, you start to not email those people anymore or you email them way less. Yeah, and it sounded like people who are not engaged at all and the people who hit spam are almost equally perilous. Yeah, you're you're stuck between those those two poles. You're trying to strike a balance. You know, you definitely want to, you know, people can be very episodic. And so you want to, you know, you want to give people an opportunity to, to become, you know, re-engaged. But yes, you've in the same way that, you know, marketers need to balance like sort of business demands and the demands of inbox providers. Sort of at that list level, you want to balance, you know, those negative behaviors and those positive behaviors and kind of stay in the middle. Right. So now, Chad, you and anyone who's seen a movie where there's bank robbers. And the teller slips a canister of paint that explodes in the bag after the bank robbers have run away. Yeah. (laughs) That reminds me of a spam trap. Can you explain what these 
companies are doing to, to catch people? Sure. Yeah. So there's, first of all, there's a variety of different kinds of spam traps, but, but the most dangerous ones are called pristine spam traps. These are email addresses that the inbox providers themselves or blacklisting organizations create, and then they discreetly put them on the internet in places where only like harvesting bots are going to find them. So only bad actors are going to find those email addresses. They are not... They're not uh, going to bounce. Well, these addresses aren't like you and I can't just like randomly go and find these email addresses. Right. But they use those email addresses to identify the spammers. So if you send to one of these spam trap email addresses, then blacklisting organizations and inbox providers say, you must be a spammer. And that's part of why buying lists is so dangerous, especially if you are not paying a lot of money for an email list, because that list probably has a spam trap or two or three or many, probably also is bloated with role email addresses. So like sales at, you know, company X or what have you, which are also not great email addresses to mail to. Right, yeah, thanks for mentioning So uh, yeah, spam traps are really dangerous. They're tied very closely to to buying lists. That's one of the reasons why buying lists is really awful. But yeah, if you're if you're not following the rules, if you're not, you know, focusing on organic list growth, if you're doing anything dodgy, you open yourself up to uh, having spam traps get on your list. And all it takes is a few of those on your list and you can get blocked. So you said if you do anything dodgy, you're going to get in trouble. Chad, this reminds me so much of search engine optimization, where I think there's a lot of people that think, oh yeah, search SEO. Yeah, you just hire some guys to tinker with your website and you can game the algorithm. Well, no, all everyone I respect in the SEO world has said, you just can't fool Google anymore. Nope. <laughs> Don't even try. You right, can't. Right and for they're humans. vicious. And, and they're thought, vicious. They will get you. Oh, and, and that's you. why I'm saying the inbox providers. It it just it was just the other side of the coin. It was just like looking at the at the same thing. So doggone it, they're making everybody behave. You know, yes. <laughs> the, era, the era of Absolutely. bad easy marketing is over. Yeah, and that also plays into you know things like Gmail tabs, and certainly other inbox providers are also having tab systems, tabbed inboxes, and you know a lot of marketers have tried to like kind of game their way into you oh, know the, the primary yeah. tab, yeah, that main tab. And first of all, I would say that that's I don't think that that's the best place for you if you are you know a retailer or what have you. You should want to be in the place where subscribers expect to find you. Now, if they move you into the primary tab, that's a different matter. But there has been a, a bit of gamesmanship over the years, people trying to manipulate Google's algorithm so they can get placed in a different tab. First of all, again, I think it's, you, know, you should be where subscribers expect to find you. But number two, don't mess with Google. Google will burn you. Like <laughs> you are playing with fire. You know the same kinds of things we've seen in SEO, where you know Google has been has been vicious even towards its own internal groups. I was reading just the other day a story about this. I think Jay Bear was was posting something, and like I remember uh, there was there was a bit in there about how Chrome had like kind of manipulated. <laughs> Like its listings and Google like banned Chrome for like two months or something like that. So yeah, don't mess with Google. That's not a, it's not a smart thing to do. And the same thing with Microsoft and you know these other inbox providers. Like it's just not worth it. No, no, it. And, and it's not worth it. And because of your explanation of the price you are gonna pay. Holy cow. But let's move on. Drop a few value bombs for the listener here, which I thought would be very helpful. You recommend not attaching too much meaning to open rates and other surface metrics. Explain what you mean. Yeah, we we put way too much emphasis on opens. And the main reason I think that that's become 
such a horrible metric. I mean, it's a valuable metric to look at, but we place too much emphasis on it. And the, and the main reason is, is that opens are not the goal of your email program. Like if you talk to your boss, if you're an email marketer and you talk to your boss and you say, look at all these opens we got, that's not going to win you any points. That is not the point at all. And I see when... It's like getting a Facebook like Exactly. With an open but, email, yeah. But we'll, and marketers will end up using opens to determine like A-B test winners and all kinds of other things that they have no business using opens to determine. And I, I think subject lines is, is that's probably the, the worst offender here. There's this perception that the goal of a subject line is to get people to open. So people do... You said a that lot. is the biggest myth in all of email marketing. I, I think that it is. I think it is. And, you know, we see A-B tests all the time that are done and they'll say like, you know, subject line B1 because it had, you know, X percentage opens versus the other subject line. Well, that is not the goal of a subject line. The goal of a subject line is to, to get openers who are going to convert. You want people to open your email that are predisposed to react to the message inside and convert. So and it's convert all could about mean what? So converting could it could mean a variety of things for sure. So it's whatever you're asking the, the person to ultimately do. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, if you're in retail, you're probably asking people to buy something. If you're, you know, B2B, it might be to download, you know, a, a white paper or to register for a webinar or an event or whatever. So whatever that action is that you want them to do, that's the conversion. So it may not be necessarily a sales conversion, but I like to call those email conversions. It's whatever you're asking them to do. So you really, even that subject line should be optimized to, to sort of pre-select openers that make the rest of your email successful. Yeah. And you recommend focusing more on things like clicks and conversions. When people are talking about opens, it's almost like saying, hey, boss, look at all these Facebook likes we got. And also, there's a larger lesson here for marketers. And it's not just in your book. You, you talk about how marketers shouldn't be you know, reporting email marketing success. They should, they should be translating that into business success for reporting to management. And the same thing, it's like all these CEOs, they're looking at a lot of marketers and there's studies out there showing them like they're, they're just focused on the marketing. How does that affect my revenue? How does that affect my growth? You know, connect a few more dots for the management when you're talking about your email marketing. Absolutely. Yeah. I, again, we talked earlier about how email marketers sort of sit between business and the inbox providers and you have to serve kind of both masters. So e-marketers have to pay attention to both. But when they're talking to the business owners, they need to focus on different things. They need to not be focusing. Uh, they need to be paying attention to opens and clicks and all that all that stuff. That's very important for the email channel health and you know making sure that your your sender reputation is good and you continue to get your emails delivered. But when talking to the business owners, you need to make sure you're focused on things that that they care about. You know, and that's sales and you know brand image and and things of that nature. Those are the things that they care about. And we've been actually doing some research lately that shows that a lot of email marketers are kind of struggling to do that effectively. And I think this is one of the reasons why email marketing budgets have sort of been chronically low. Yeah, you talk about how emails chronically underinvested. Yes, unfortunately it is. And you know, I think part of it is this sort of this legacy of of people thinking that you know that email is is free. easy and it's simple and free and cheap and you know it's it's just you know it's just email you know you're not paying Facebook like they're not 
you know, they're, you know, they're, you're paying through like an ESP, an email service provider, but you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, that, that part of the, the expense is way lower than, you know, if you're buying ads on, on Facebook or what have you. But uh, yeah, there's this perception that it's, it's easy and cheap and, and that's not really the case anymore. And, and we're, again, we're seeing awesome things in terms of like AI and personalization and big data and all this stuff that's coming to bear, you know, all those things are, are pretty pricey, uh, but all of those things work really well with email. So I think the, the worm is starting to turn there. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of social where there was this, you know, maybe misguided perception that it was free, but as Jay Bear likes to say, social media is free, free like a puppy. And yeah. <laughs> more more organizations are starting to realize, well, you actually have to staff up or hire somebody and, you know, it involves more of the company than they realize. So not just interns anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah. Holy cow. <laughs> Email subject lines. Chad S. White, what is the sweet spot for how long an email subject line should be? Yeah, so it, it needs to be long enough that you can convey your message. Are there opportunities to... Well, now, wait a minute. President Obama had a, a subject line that was, hey... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do cite that in the in the in the book, and that it one worked I very think, well. Yeah, it worked incredibly well. But it wasn't just and, about the email; they they knew who was sending it. So right, yeah. One of the the falsehoods around subject lines is that people think that that's the number one thing that people look at when deciding whether or not to open an email, and it's not. It's the number two thing. The first thing they look at is who is the email from. The yeah, from so. So you're not so, recommending we all put Barack Obama in our uh, <laughs> sender from? Okay, good. No, I just want to make clear. Really. Thanks. Let me write that. Down. Yeah. So yeah, that example from the Obama campaign has kind of done a little bit of damage in terms of you know people's perceptions about how things work. That was a really special case. So I mean, that was an email that was sent like on the eve of like a major fundraising deadline. It was, he was already president, right? Obama. No, no, he was, it was uh, during the campaign. Oh, okay, okay. And it was like at the end of like, I think the Q1 fundraising cycle. But yeah, but I mean- It's people, the same thing as people who say, well, I saw on the news that someone won the lottery once, so I'm going to go buy a lottery ticket. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I don't want to discourage people from being inspired by what right. like other people have done. And that's a great thing. But I, it needs to be long that, enough. Yeah. So yeah, everyone, you should de definitely be paying attention to what other people are doing and getting inspired and trying new things. But I think that's like a really, like a really rare special case where like, if you're not Obama, like you're probably not going to pull that off. Okay. All right. Damn it. So what's the number? So it's probably, you know, nowadays it's probably in the sort of like 20 to 40 character range. Right. And I think you said after 40, some of the inbox providers start to, to cut it off. Yeah, they start to, to truncate it. Yeah, so having it be longer than that, you know, they're not going to see it in the inbox. They'll see it when they open the email. But, you know, but the, but the good news is, the good news is, is that while subject lines, you know, generally get cut out, cut off after 40 characters, you have what's called preview text. And preview text is sort of a preview of the very first text that's inside of that email. And you know, on your iPhone, it's, there's actually two lines of preview text that you can see, you can get a little peek inside. And it's incredibly powerful. I refer to that as a second subject line. And unfortunately, it's incredibly under-optimized by even really big brands that are sending emails. I see preview text all the time that's just like URL links and administrative text that's at the top of an email. You know, you can 
you can optimize that text so it supports that subject line. It's like getting, you know, is expanding that subject line like three times. Uh, so, so that's a that's a quick win for, for folks out there who are looking for a quick win. Take a look at your preview text. If you're not optimizing that, do it. Yes, yes. It's like letting really good food go to waste. Let me wrap up with a little bit, just a couple questions about design. Chad, you say that the age of mobile has fundamentally and forever changed email design. We, you talked about the iPhone earlier. Explain why you recommend a mobile-friendly design approach for emails rather than a desktop-centric design. Sure. So one of the things that we do here at Litmus is that we track uh, where emails get opened. We track that on like a geolocation basis, but we also track it in terms of which email clients and devices people are opening emails on. And we, we will slot those by by uh, environment category as well. So we look at desktop, we look at webmail, and we look at mobile. And for the better part, I think, of the last two years, maybe even a little bit more, the majority of email opens have occurred on mobile devices. And yet I would guess that most emails are set up on a desktop. <laughs> no, we've made really good progress. No, I mean, we people sitting at their computer getting ready to send it out, they're not necessarily thinking about how it's going to look on a mobile device. That, that, that there is that disconnect. But uh, big brands uh, in general have done a pretty, it's taken them a long time to adjust to this new reality. But the current state of, of uh, email mobile friendliness is pretty decent. And there's, and there's sort of two ways to go. You can do really basic design changes that typically refer to as mobile aware design. It's just sort of, you know, using bigger images, you know, bigger fonts, you know, bigger buttons, kind of make everything bigger. And that makes, you know, for a nice, simple, good mobile experience. Or you can use some variety of responsive email design, which is rampant in the web world. You know, yeah. most websites are, are responsive at this point. So, you know, email is always sort of lagging behind uh, a lot of the things we see on the web. And, and this is another instance of that. You need to take, you know, what you've done on your website in terms of responsiveness. You can port that same philosophy over to your emails. Although it's actually more complicated than it is for the web guys based on it is. what I saw. And you even talk about a concept called defensive design. What is that? Yeah. So defensive design traditionally is when images are blocked uh, in an email client. So, you know, most of the marketing emails that are sent are HTML. They have pictures in them and such, but probably in the neighborhood of 30% of emails actually arrive with images blocked, either because they're an unknown sender and it's sort of blocked by default, by Outlook, or in some cases people choose to view emails without images enabled. But a lot of times when that happens, if you've put all of your text embedded in your graphics, then nothing shows up. So defensive design, its core is all about creating a good experience for people who are viewing emails with images turned off. But in the book, I argue that we need sort of a more expansive definition of defensive design as we get more and more instances where certain functionality is supported and certain functionality not, we need to have fallbacks in place. So I mentioned earlier about HTML5 video. That's a really cool thing. Apple, all the Apple email clients support it, 42% of the subscribers of the average sender is going to be able to see that HTML5 video and play it in their inbox. So you need something for everybody else. And so you have to build in fallback. So you can see this does get really complicated, yeah. but at the same time, you now, now you've created like a really cool experience for those people 
you know, that are able to see that HTML5 video. And that's becoming like the balancing act that a lot of marketers are having to do. You know, it used to be that we were kind of playing down to the lowest common denominator. And that's not really the, the case anymore. You really have to kind of play up to like the most, you know, advanced experiences that you can you can give your subscribers. And that requires using a series of fallbacks to make sure that you're not neglecting everybody else. Yeah, and you also talk about how the most disruptive thing for email are the expectations being set by those on the bleeding edge, like you know Amazon or Netflix. Uh, suddenly, a customer experiences a really cool email or new, seemingly new email experience. That's that's their new expectation. Everyone should give me that. Absolutely, yeah. Those 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 guys are the the bane of everybody else's existence. Is the cool things that that Amazon and Apple and Netflix and Fitbit and uh, and all those guys do. They do over time reset people's expectations, raise those expectations. And so that bar is always creeping up. So you can't, you can't stand still in email marketing. You always have to be doing a little bit more testing, optimizing, getting better and better. Well, I hope you're getting your fourth edition ready, Chad White. So Chad, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think the one thing I'd want people to take away is that quote unquote basic email marketing is now complex. You, know, you can't you can't do it simply. You can't do it easily. You really got to invest some money in it, some time. You know, there's a lot of moving pieces to kind of keep track of. There's no kind of you know cheap and easy way to do it anymore. So you got to dedicate the time. You got to take it seriously. Well said. And if it were cheap and easy, your book wouldn't be 464 pages long. <laughs> so I think that actually an email marketer could hold that up and say, "Look, look what I'm having to deal with. I need more budget." And I need help. So what books have inspired your working career, Chad? So needless to say, I've got a lot of email marketing books on my bookshelf, but I also have quite a few like sort of content marketing books on my shelf. At, at my heart, uh, I'm a content marketer. You know, I'm a journalist. You know, that's that's my roots. You know, I'm a researcher. So uh, I've got, you know, like Jay Bear's Utility. I've got Joe Pulizzi's, you know, Epic Content Marketing. Those are, have been influential books for me. That That I think right now is sort of my is my touchstone is trying to create content that that helps people that you know illuminates misunderstandings and helps people to do a better job two great books and i've had the honor of interviewing both of them on the podcast are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or have heard about or looking forward to reading so i know that joe pluzis has killing marketing coming up i'm excited to see what that's about reading online the other day, some recommendations by, by marketers. They're sort of non-marketing books recommended by marketers. And so I've got... Oh, that might have been uh, Carla Johnson's post. Uh, that, that might be right. Yeah. So I yeah. read that. And, and so I picked a couple off that list. I've got Influence, uh, The Psychology of Persuasion, which I've heard cited many times, but haven't ever read it. So. That book has been mentioned more on this podcast than any other book. So I think it's time for me to read that. And then I also picked up The Writer's Journey, which I have on the side, some some novel aspirations at, at some point, maybe in the distant future. So I thought I would pick that up and, and read oh, that good. as well. Well, so Chad, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? So you can go to emailmarketingrules.com and you can also find me on on most social media at Chad S. White, very active on Twitter. That's probably where I'm most active is on Twitter, but you can also find me on LinkedIn at Chad S. White. And obviously you can learn uh, all about the book on Amazon. And there are a lot of great resources at Email Marketing Rules and you reference it several times in the book with specific examples of things you were talking about. Yeah, the the you know books are great for kind of laying out like big ideas and stuff, but they're they're not really awesome. For instance, for like including lots of examples of emails. So all of my email examples are 
on the website where you can see them in color and you can zoom in on them and you can download them. Yeah. And you made that real clear at the beginning of the book. Like, I'm not going to show you pictures. They're all here, but they're not going to work on this book. And it was like, okay, that makes sense. Plus, that would make the book well over 500 pages. So. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> also but, save some pages in the process. Right. <laughs> well, but it would give me pictures. No. The name of the book is Email Marketing Rules, Checklist Frameworks, and 150 Best Practices for Business Success. The author is Chad S. White. Chad, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for having me. And that closes the book on episode 130 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And to register for Content Marketing World, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com, click on the Content Marketing World banner so they'll know I sent you, and then for the very best price, enter promo code MARKETINGBOOK. And if you have any feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And please join us next time as we welcome Tom Hogan to the show to talk about the new book he has co-authored with Carol Broadbent, The Ultimate Startup Guide, Marketing Lessons, War Stories, and Hard-Won Advice from Leading Venture Capitalists and Angel Investors. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, uh, just a little bit of trivia here, Chad. We may actually be related because I'm descended from a, an officer in the Revolution named William White. And long story short, he was in the Revolution. His son was at the Battle of New Orleans, the War of 1812. He mm -hmm. later fought a duel with Sam Houston himself. What? <laughs> and, wow. <laughs> and he, he lost, but he didn't die. But from that point on, uh, marksmanship in our family has been extremely important. <laughs> uh, that is an epic story.